As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Everybody to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and it's very much MLS playoff season. We've got our conference finalists set, and the possible MLS Cup final location options are narrowing. Here with me to discuss the results of round two are the two hosts of MLS Assist Podcast. First up, Jordan Angeli. Jordan, thank you for being here yet again. Yeah, thanks for having me, Taylor. We've got um Yeah, always a, good to have you. A lot to talk about. All these- yeah. Overtime games. What's happening? <laughs> so many penalties. So many penalties to be discussed. Uh, and here with us to discuss those and many other things is also Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. Hello, Taylor. Uh, Joe, uh, it was an easier night for you. I think West Coast always makes late night viewing easier. Uh, so I'm assuming you weren't up too late. But uh, how exciting did you find last night's game between the New England Revolution and NYCFC? What a game. Man, yes, the start of this one was crazy. The end was even crazier. This was... This was my favorite playoff game so far and one of my favorite games of the entire season. It was a great, if someone had never watched an MLS game and they had turned this on between the crowd and the atmosphere here on the, the domestic broadcast and the quality on the field and the energy. I mean, so many different pieces of this, so many different facets all came together to make it what I thought was a truly, truly fun game. Jordan, was that about the same for you? What did you make of the game? I loved the game, too. I thought it was so fun. And um, I was watching in another room, and my parents slipped it on um, for a second right before, right at the start of the second half. And the pace was just crazy, I thought, throughout the whole game. And I'm like, this is how the game, the whole game has been. It was so fun. High-paced, high-energy, um, some big tackles, some silly tackles. Yeah. Uh, but But it was everything that you would hope for for a game where you win and move on or you lose and you go home it was it was a perfect mls playoff game and jordan you all have been watching these teams talking about these teams all season did this one go roughly how you thought it would in terms of the intensity in terms of the tactics what was sort of the story for you of this game overall from that tactical standpoint yeah i think it did because the revs as 
everybody knows we're the best team when it comes to grabbing points this year and winning games. They have a points record in MLS now due to this season that they just had. And so they are a team who likes to get after you, especially in transition moments. They have two quality outside backs in Dwan Jones and Brandon Bai, who add to the attack of Tejan Buchanan, who is one of the best young players in MLS. And then the three DPs who started for the Revs always add um, that intensity and that high pace. It's Buxa Bo and Carlos Heel. And I felt like when you start with that lineup for the New England Revolution, you know that they're going to try to get after you and make this game expansive. On the other side, I know Joe talked about this last um, week, and Joe and I talked about it on MLS Assist a lot this year, is New York City, if you look at this team on paper, they could be one of the best teams to play in MLS. They are so talented and have such good, uh, such a good tactical awareness that I think Ronnie Dyla has honed in for them. And I liked their um, inclusion of Santiago Rodriguez over the last few months. I feel like this young player has really added to what this city team can do going forward it, with the combinations he has off of Castellanos and Maxi Morales. So it was both two teams who like to play direct, but um, can play direct through the lines, not so much over the top. They like to go straight through almost the gut of the other team a lot of the times and get after. And I, I feel like we saw that time and time again in this game. Joe, I know you had some concerns about NYCFC's, I believe, right side it was. It was one of the sides. I'm pretty sure it was the right. Uh, how did that play out uh, last night? And do you have any concerns about the next round with some of the injuries we would assume they will have? The injuries are brutal. And the suspension to Taji Castellanos yeah. for getting double yellows in this one is maybe even more brutal than than already being without mm-hmm. Anton Tinnerholm at right back and Keaton Parks in the middle of the park. I did I did have some concerns about the right side, Taylor, because I think in that, that first half of the Atlanta United game especially Tavon Gray looked rough. It, he didn't look, he didn't look bad, but the execution wasn't there. And then ahead of him, Jesus Medina on the right side of the 4-2-3-1. He's not a player that I, I think is particularly well-rounded and particularly clever on the ball. And, and I think that right side turned into a bit of a black hole against Atlanta United in the first 45 minutes. It was a bit better in the second half of that game. And Tavon Gray was, a, was able to be a bit more impactful. In this game, I was watching closely on that side, and I actually thought Tavon Gray did a really good job, especially early on. He plays a key part in that goal, playing the ball across the box for Santiago Rodriguez. He timed his runs well, just like he did some in the second half of the Atlanta game. He was getting on the ball. He played some nice passes. He wasn't perfect in this one, but for a young player who's still, I guess now he's more of a right back than a center back, but he's played both of those spots, and he doesn't have... Maybe a traditional right back build, even at 19, there's time for that to change, I guess. But I was pretty impressed by him. And Jesus Medina, I don't think was, was particularly poor necessarily. So the right side, I think, shaped up fairly well for New York City, who I think had the better run in open play in this game. Yeah. And I just want to add to that, Joe, the, the first goal that City scored in what the third minute. Gosh, it happened so quickly. If you turned it on late, you were going to miss that goal. It, it looked so much like City's goal against Atlanta. It, even though it comes from a corner kick in that Atlanta game, it's Medina playing in that um, tucked in internal winger spot. And it's 
Tayvon Gray or Tayvon Gray getting around him and that in that overlapping situation. It's almost like this is such a play that City does when they're switching the point of attack. Medina tucks in, Gray overlaps, and they can get at teams like that, which is something that we saw time and time again when they did have Tinnerholm in there, which with his ability to get forward. So it's that's definitely a play that they like to execute. Jordan, you mentioned switching the point of attack there, and that was the very first thing that I had in my notes for New York City. From the from the start of this game, it's very clear on the goal. The uh, New York City switches from left to right on that, and that, that helps them create space on the far side to then work the ball back into the center of the box for Santi Rodriguez. But in this first half, I didn't see it as much as the game wore on, but early on in this one, and it did happen later, New York City really prioritized those switches. When you're playing against the Revs in the shape that they played, so the Revs are in this... Essentially a 4-4-2 diamond. It's not mm-hmm. that rigid. And I don't think Bruce Arena would like that I just gave him three numbers to describe <laughs> his team. But, but it's a back four and it's a front two and it's Carlos Hill floating a little bit and it's a midfield three behind him sort of, but Tejan's not really a right center mid. And so it's, it's a little bit fluid and it doesn't provide a ton of defensive stability. And if there's been one weakness for the Revs this season, it has been their overall defensive stability and, and their inability to stop the opposition from creating consistent chances. So New York City see that in this game. They see that the Revs are defending with a front two without a, a solid midfield line of four behind that front two. And so that means there's space. There's space on the wings because they don't have that width in midfield. And so New York City see that over and over again early in this game. And they get the ball on one side and then they work it across. It wasn't usually these long diagonal switches. It was usually mm-hmm. these one, two, three pass combinations to get the ball to the far side. But man, over and over again in the first 20 minutes of this one, I noted New York City doing that. And they had a lot of success exploiting that weak side for the Revs, which made it hard for them to control this game. And you know, even in spite of that, and this is a point of credit for the Revolution, they get that goal early on and, and it almost negates all the damage that New York City was able to do. There's a practicality to the way I, th- I saw NYCFC playing because we would see the Revs press in certain moments. It seemed to be sometimes <clears throat> when they had lost possession, sometimes when NYCFC entered certain parts of the pitch. And when they would come under pressure, there wasn't a lot of uh, like delaying. There wasn't a lot of trying to figure it out on the fly. It was usually, let's go vertical. Let's try to pass the ball forward. And if we turn it over, we turn it over. But we turn it over in their half or their defensive third. Or if there was a little bit more time, if there wasn't that immediate pressure, I agree with you, Joe. You would see those big switches. That then makes everybody slide over. Uh, for New England, everybody has to get back into their shape. And by the time they do, you can move the ball again if you're NYCFC, or you can move the ball up the pitch if you want to. But I thought that did sort of keep New England from really getting much of a foothold for good chunks of this game um, up until they have the man advantage. And then, to some extent, the two-man advantage by the end of the game, because Gray playing with, I'm assuming, a pulled hamstring. I was terrified that if we went to penalties he was going to have to take one because if you're on the pitch you gotta take one and (laughs) i don't know what he would he would have had to like back heal it i guess i wasn't really sure how that was going to work out for him so i'm glad it did not come to that i think i just had so much sympathy i think he had to go in for a slide tackle at the very end and i I really thought his leg might snap so i'm glad (laughs) that he is uh able to move i don't know if we will see him in the next game but we will see nycfc certainly um does this feel like a, I know it's a cliche question to ask, I will ask it anyway, does this feel like a statement win to you all? Again, having watched both of these teams, many teams in the league this season, for them to kind of, uh, for New York to be able to get this result on the road to play as comprehensively as they did, did in a hostile environment, it was a great atmosphere, I really enjoyed that part of it, I'm sure the cold also a bit intimidating, but to be able to play through that, 
to get the win, to dominate possession, to get good chances. Uh, Jordan, did this feel to you like a statement of what's to come, or might we see them then have problems uh, in the Eastern Conference final? I think it's a, a statement, but I think New York City this year have made a lot of statements about who they are as a team. And it's really difficult for me because these games, you know, it wasn't a win like the other game we're going to talk about. It was not like this, te- these teams won, like Nashville drew and so did Philly and these two teams drew. It's like, um, it's hard to say that this is a big statement win, but it's a result that I think makes a statement for New York City and their ability to play out games. Then again, this is a team who has had the most red cards in MLS this season. So they make silly mistakes that if they could clean those things up, then they could really put themselves in a better situation. So yeah, I do think for, for New York city, they show that they've shown all year that they have the ability and the flair to play soccer that is worthy of watching, but do they have the ability to close out close games? I think that's where we saw maybe, an uptick, even though they give up that, that late goal to make it two to two, they still defended with their, their life. You said almost even down two players and showed a little bit of grit. And I, I do think there's a lot of credit to be, to be had for Collins and Cheneau, those two center backs for New York City who have been there now for a number of years. They create such stability for the players in front of them to have such fluidity in their movement. And so, um, yeah, we'll see if, if this is a, just a statement. Result and then next week, if they don't have James Sands, what is this team going to look like centrally? I thought Rocha did good coming into the game, a player who hasn't played a lot, but um, James Sands is one of the best holding midfielders in this league. And to not have him, you talk about not having Tati, Tati Castellanos, but Sands is is going to be so key if if they don't have him in the next game. And Sands is is doubly key for this team, Jordan, because not only is he a key for them in the middle of the field, but he's also been the one playing right back a lot yeah. towards the end of the season while Anton Tinnerholm is out. And then Tavon Gray slid into that spot so Jaden Sands could shift back into midfield with no Keaton Parks. And now you're having to play a bit of a, a puzzle here. You don't really play puzzles, but you guys get what I mean, right? I mean, it's not okay. it's not an easy thing to solve here for Ronnie Dyla. I don't know how he's going to do it. He's fortunate to have a bear back and maybe not 90 minutes fit, but on the bench and played a few times towards the end of this season. So that's a logical like for like swap, at least positionally for Tati Castellanos. But what happens at right back and what happens in the middle of the field? I, I do not know. Those are big questions right now. Mm-hmm. And we will assume that Ronnie Dyla is going to be able to answer those. I would assume that based on what we saw last night with NYCFC looking very good. I did feel like New England at times looking maybe a little bit off the, off the pace. And this is where I ask you all again, because you all are the experts on these things. Like there was the, there was the delay because New England had the bye. So I think it was a 23 day wait between their last game and this game. Do you all feel like there was some rustiness, Joe? Do you think that there was a little bit of sort of having to get back into the groove or was this NYCFC just making New England uncomfortable and sort of dictating the game or maybe a combination of the two? I think it probably is a combination of the two, Taylor. I think a lot of of how NYCFC play is designed to make the opposition uncomfortable and designed to make them look slow and take them out of the game. So there's that portion of it. But for the Revs, I think the the time between games factors in. We see it with the Rapids, too, on the other side of this bracket. Both top seeds had really long waits. The Revs significantly longer still than the Rapids. And both are done. And that's not the only reason why they're out. Playoffs are 
statistically random and there's a lot, well, not entirely random, but there's a lot of unpredictableness that happens in the postseason. So it's not as if the, the time between games for these top seeds is the only reason, but I think it's, it's fair to question if that's the right way to do things. If you're major league soccer, I would, Jordan, I wanted to ask you mm-hmm. as a, as a former player thinking about these games, how would you have dealt with, how would you have enjoyed or not enjoyed a 20 plus day break between your last regular season game and your first playoff game? Cause it doesn't sound all that fun. No, I would have not liked it at all because one of the benefits of being in season is you have the rhythm of what it's like, the intensity and just the feel of a game week in and week out. And when you take that away, you can try to replicate it all you want. But it is not replicable in an inter-squad scrimmage, in a playing against a USL team, whatever it may be that Bruce Arena and Robin Fraser tried to do in this time where those number one seeds had off. So I think that we saw it in both of the games. I thought City and then to talk about Portland against Colorado, the, the teams playing the one seeds, I thought both those teams were a little bit crisper when it came to decision making, especially in the second half. I thought that they were quicker to get to second balls and a little bit more had a little bit more feel for the game as the game wore on. And that to me is just they've been playing and I wouldn't have preferred that. I don't think a lot of the players prefer that you want to stay in the rhythm. Yeah, maybe maybe like 10 days off after the season that this was in MLS would have been nice. But um they spoke on the broadcast that the Revs played City uh, a month ago. Well, that was just... The, the, they've only played one game in between those two, if you're the Revs, is the Decision Day game. So it's crazy to me to think that a month ago was only two games ago for the Revs. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I didn't really think about, think about it like that. And Jordan, is it like... For people who haven't played, is it a is it just a rustiness? Is it like your decision making is a little bit slower because you're not in the groove? Is there anything in particular that stands out when you do have that extended break? Because I'm with you. Mm-hmm. If I don't play for a month and then I try to play my first touch, always pops up in the air, right. uh, and that's just it. Like sort of mine does that all the time. So it's time. Mine yeah, does exactly. that all the time. I don't even notice. I can take yeah. as long as I want between games. You guys. <laughs> Joe, you're working on it. You're working. On it. I, I, like, um, I like the Joe approach of if it's never good. That it never it gets truly really bad. There we go. I like it, Joe. It's crafty. I do think that both of those things, you know, for these players, like I don't, I, I do think that maybe their touch can get a little rusty, but they're training so hard every day that I don't think that that's the case. I think it's the touch in the decision making process, right? Like it's hard to judge. Um, the pressure of another team and say, okay, is my touch too close or is my touch too far away? And you don't know those things unless you're in a game situation and the decision making is, has to be crisp and you have to think so much so far ahead. So I think it's just being in the flow with the intensity and having to have the stillness in that intensity to make good decisions. I think that that is the challenging part when you haven't been in those situations for such a long time. That's why the beginning of the year is difficult, right? And mistakes get made is because you haven't been in decision-making moments in games for such a long period. And I think in some ways, that's that's what we saw with the Revs. They just weren't as sharp as we have seen them play throughout this year. Joe, with that in mind, final question on this game, for me at least, 
having not watched Dejan Buchanan uh, to the level that you all have, I assume, but also not with like the detail that you all have. Was this a standard performance from him? He gets the goal, the equalizer very late, and it's a great goal. But other than that, it felt like a really frustrated performance. He has the, I would say, straight up dive in the very early moments of this game. And from there, it seemed... Like, he was pretty frustrated. It seemed like NYCFC did a good job of sort of giving those little kicks, those little nudges, those little bumps that are always going to frustrate if you're already agitated. And to some extent, I didn't see him have as big of an influence in the game as I thought he would. And I'm wondering if maybe that was a little bit of the head games, a little bit of the frustration, maybe a little bit of youth, or if this is sort of what you've seen from him this season. There is a fieriness, but then he can back it up with those sort of big game moments. It's been... This performance from Tejon Buchanan was not his best, and okay. the goal was phenomenal. Don't get me wrong. It was really, really good. The way he hits that, I mean, there's so many ways for that to go wrong, and a lot of times it does go wrong. But that strike at the back post to equalize in the 118th minute is just bonkers, and the moment is even more bonkers. But this was not Tejon Buchanan's best game. He's a player who thrives on open space and attacking downhill, and the refs had chances to do that. Don't get me wrong. But they weren't able to do that regularly because they struggled to control much of the game at all. They were kind of playing on NYCFC's terms. And so Tejan didn't get a chance as much as he had earlier in this season, as much as he has earlier in this season, to really show his stuff. And it's a shame in his last game for the refs before he moves over to Belgium to play with Club Bruges. It's a shame we didn't get to see more of him. But that that goal, Taylor, I think will be his sort of final (laughs) moment in uh, in the Boston general area. Yeah, and in some ways, I wonder if he would have been maybe the fifth taker and uh, he doesn't get the opportunity, or I'm not sure who it would have been. But at least he doesn't have then like the missed penalty on that. It is sort of that last big hit, that last big goal, and then he's out the door. So I guess it could be worse for sure. (laughs) Can I just add, too, like to Tejan's credit, the last couple games he's played has been in CONCACAF. And oh, good call. <laughs> if you think about some of those things, could have been called in CONCACAF. And yeah. I think that he just got frustrated because maybe the calls he was getting in the last couple games were fouls like that. And that was not the fouls the referee was going to be giving in this game. I thought yeah. he actually refereed the game very well, kept it um as clean as it could be and not giving out too many yellow cards. Yeah. But this was a feisty game. And you had to be willing to be ready for the the fight and to be ready for the shoulder to shoulder shoulder challenge and sometimes a tackle on the ball that was going to get a little bit of your ankle and it's not a foul but it hurts still and I don't think Tejan was able to manage that but I do think a little part of that was because um, the last games he came off were CONCACAF and um, we all know what happens there. Just just hugs and lots of uh, pleasantries <laughs> and politeness. Yeah, that's a good point, Jordan. Um, so commiserations to Tejan Buchanan and the New England Revolutions and their fans. Congratulations to NYCFC and their fans. They will be in the Eastern Conference final. We're going to talk about their opponent, the Philadelphia Union, in just a moment. But first, a word from today's sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. We are back. I ended the last segment by saying commiserations to New England fans. I will now say commiserations to Jordan Angeli for uh, her <laughs> prediction that Nashville was going to go all the way. I was right there with you, Jordan. But the Philadelphia the Philadelphia Union. Whew, Difficult to say early in the morning. Philadelphia <laughs> Union uh, made that not a possibility with their one-to-one draw and shootout victory over Nashville. Jordan, how are you feeling? You know, once I the game played out, I was like, Joe was right. He, a lot of the things that Joe said in the last um, podcast about Nashville just not having an additional game changer, especially off the bench in this, this game where it went long into overtime, into penalties, like... They could have used someone to bring off the bench. That could have been an extra game changer. And so, um, yeah, I just have to say credit Joe Lowry on knowing all the things. <laughs> I mostly, first of all, Jordan, thank you. And, and second of all, I'm sorry that your, your MLS Cup winner is gone. I would just like to say this is a big win for team no predictions. Um, if you can't make a prediction, you can't be wrong. You know what I mean? That's all I'm saying. <laughs> That's good. Uh, Joe, we talk, we're talking about Nashville not having that game changer. Do the Philadelphia Union have that game changer? Cause they too seem like they were lacking options in front of goal. Maybe they could have used a few more goal scorers in this game and maybe in this postseason so far. Yeah, the, some, some of the similar themes from both of these teams yep. round one mm-hmm. games popped up again here. And, and to get to the Union one you're talking about, Taylor, yeah, the Union could use a bit more attacking <laughs> firepower, right? They get Jamiro Montero back for this one, and that's huge for them. And getting him a game in his legs before the conference final I think is massive. And I'm, I'm really interested to see what he does against NYCFC. But yeah, they, they created chances, and I thought they were the better team in the second half of this game. They're, they're fortunate to get that goal from Daniel Gazdag right before the first half whistle blows, the, the halftime whistle blows. In the second half, I thought they had a bit more momentum, and they were better with the ball, finding some opportunities to chip it in behind Nashville's back line and create chances. But man, they have struggled in the playoffs and in the regular season for large part, they've struggled to put the ball in the back of the net. They are not particularly good when it comes to creating chances, just like Nashville aren't all that good when it comes to creating consistent chances either. So between those things, it made this one a bit of a slog and then a lack of, of finishing and putting the ball in the back of the net in the second half as well led us to extra time. And then at that point, it didn't really feel like anything was ever going to happen. Gary yeah. Smith, I think, said that he knew it was going to penalties in the, the first half of extra time <laughs> or the half time of extra time. Well, it's like, well, why are we even doing the second half? Let's just get on with it. But then uh, the penalty shootout did not disappoint. Well, okay, it disappointed some people in a particular city, but not uh, not the rest of us for, for entertainment value, at least. <laughs> yeah, I, I will say I do often wonder what would happen if the official was able to just put it straight to the teams of we could do 30 minutes of extra time <laughs> or we could just go straight to penalties. What would they do? I feel like most of the time everyone's going to think they can make something happen. But I yeah. agree. This one felt like it was going to penalties the whole way. It did not feel like it would be as one-sided in the penalties, but Nashville missing all four of theirs in increasingly 
ridiculous fashion. If you look at the kind of chart of how they missed, it goes bottom left, then like mid right, then away from goal, and then further away from goal. So it's a chart going in the wrong direction <laughs> for the Union. Missed one, made two, but that was that was plenty for them. That sets the stage for a pretty interesting Eastern Conference final. Jordan, with some of the issues we've talked about for the Union so far in the mm-hmm. playoffs. What do you think this next game is going to be? Because I don't see the Union sitting off and bunkering and being really defensive. I don't see NYCFC doing that either. So it feels like it's going to be open, maybe a little bit chippy, pretty feisty, and could go either way, especially with some of the injuries we've already talked about. Yeah, it, it'll depend because we spoke about the city injuries for Philadelphia. I don't know what's going on with Leon Flock and he comes out of this game and he's sitting in this a uh, pretty key position for the union and what Jim Curtin has done as of lately. And Joe, correct me if I'm wrong. They've gone to from this 442 diamond and they switch into that, but now they play more of a 4321. Yep. And it almost looks like a diamond centrally with like a two headed monster up top mm-hmm. with Gazdag and Montero. And it allows them to have a lot of creativity along Shabilko. But if you take Flock out, you're going to probably have to move Montero back into one of those three lower positions with Martinez and Bedoya. And then can you bring in Sergio Santos and trust him to like get anything on frame? I don't, I don't know. I don't oh, know he missed you, his penalty too. Oh no. <laughs> I don't know if you can. And I feel bad laughing about that, but it was a rough game for, for Sergio Santos. So I think the way that city plays versus the way that Philadelphia plays, both these teams are very good in moments where they have space to run into in front of them. So I think both teams are going to try to attack and they're going to be transition moments. And it's going to be the team who has the ability to um, play through the lines and get at the, the opposing team when there's a little bit of space. Because I've thought this all season, being in the Eastern Conference and watching Philadelphia, I think they're one of the best teams to, when they're running back at their goal, they do a really good job, their back line, of getting in a good defensive position early to be able to attack the ball and head it or clear it away from goal. Like their recovery defense is really good. And I think that's why it makes them one of the the most difficult teams to score a goal against. Um, but as we saw in this game for Nashville, there are spaces in between. If you can get those three in front of the back line, those three midfielders stretched from side to side, there are spaces to um, cross the ball in and, and get good opportunities. And we see that on the goal, right? Mm-hmm. We, we talked about earlier the Revs' narrow defensive shape and NYCFC finding space to play outside of their midfield and, and play down the wings and to work the ball centrally. That happens on the goal that Hani Mukhtar scores against the Union. It's in the 38th minute. It's a nice sequence of play. Nashville win the ball in their half and then go into this long passing sequence. They get Philly shifted from side to side. The ball eventually comes to Eric Miller on the right side for Nashville. He's playing as their right-sided wing back. And Leon Flack is a little slow to close him down because he's been running side to side for the last minute and a half or whatever it is, right? So then Eric Miller crosses the ball in from that side. Hani Mukhtar heads it in and it's one nothing. And Nashville at that point are are sitting kind of pretty because you think the Union don't really have the offensive firepower potentially to get back in this game. That's not how it plays out and, and the Union get a goal from a set piece. But still, you can see some of those potential weaknesses. And I think it's an interesting matchup for NYCFC because they just had a somewhat similar Union and, and the Revs defend very differently. But in terms of that shape and some of the open spaces that appear naturally because of their defensive shapes, 
I think this is somewhat of a similar challenge in that way for Ronnie Dyla's team in the in the Eastern Conference final. Can I just say one thing about set pieces and the goal that Philly scored? It was really smart because Nashville, I think I saw after the game, I don't know if you guys saw this stat, but, but I think Walker Zimmerman was saying that they had 30% of their goals scored against them on yep. defensive corner kicks. <gasps> 30 goals, 30% of their goals. That's, that's crazy. And I think what Philly did that was really smart is Nashville plays this half zone, half man mark. And so they have Sapong as that front player on the front six. And then it's Jack Mayer in, in Zim right in the middle. There we go. Yep. And so it's these three players right along the six. And what Philadelphia did is they're like, all right, if you guys are just going to stand there and you think you're going to get a free shot, we're just going to overload that area. And so they put all their man markers or the, all the players with the man marking in that area. So those zone players whose responsibility is to go head the ball and win it at all costs, they had to do it when there was six players around them. It really clogged up those areas and it made it difficult for them to win that first initial ball, which then eventually led to the union um, goal. But I think every time there was a set piece, a corner kick for Philadelphia, that's what they did. And I thought it was really smart. And if you're Gary Smith, you're thinking, okay, well, we got to change this up because if we're going to go zone, man mark and no post players, like uh, we're going to get a a lot of goals scored against us and it's going to eventually knock us out of the playoffs. With that in mind, Jordan, who do you think has the advantage on set pieces in the conference final? Because with all of the injuries we've discussed with uh, Philadelphia's inability to create consistent goal goal scoring opportunities or to just get multiple goals in the playoffs so far are in one game. Like mm-hmm. it does feel like set pieces might sort of become that much more prominent. If you do have this sort of scrappy game that's back and forth, a little bit chippy, a little bit open, those set pieces can be so important. So I'm wondering for you, who would you say has the advantage in that department? Yeah, I think, I think there's an advantage for um, New York city, especially on corners. I think Collins and Chanel do a really good job of organizing defensively their corner kicks that that's going to be a strength of theirs. And it's going to be difficult for Philly to break that down. And then offensively, New York has scored one of the most amount of corner kicks goals in the league this year. Granted, a lot of those came in that five, nothing romping of Cincinnati at home. But um, to push that aside, this is a team that does a really good job on offensive corner kicks. They scored, on a couple of set pieces against Atlanta. So I think that they have advantage there, but then I wouldn't, I wouldn't discount Montero from a set piece um, in front of goal, you know, a free kick situation for Philadelphia. But I do think the advantage in my opinion goes to city when it comes to most set pieces and dead balls. Joe, do you have an opinion on this one? Or are you going to keep it, keep it uh, comfortable on the fence? No, I think the advantage here is NYCFC a little bit too. They were a better restart team in the, in the regular season. Both teams have been quite good on them overall this year. And in, in Philly's probably been a bit better in terms of creating chances from them in the playoffs. But man, NYCFC, I think have the edge here a little bit based off of what they were able to do this season and some of the goals mm-hmm. they've scored in those moments in the postseason. And they have Maxi Morales, who that does help. I yeah, don't know about help. you guys. I feel like he has just turned it up a level in the playoffs. He's been playing so well. He's ageless, Jordan. He will never age. He'll <laughs> his, be this age forever. His role in the uh, the second goal uh, for NYCFC, the Castellanos header, 
just the way he sort of like shapes to cross, then cuts it back and like just is so calm and waits and oh. waits and waits and doesn't panic and then makes the right choice. I think it's really easy in that moment to just ping a ball into the box and hope something mm-hmm. happens or to get a shot off and just hope maybe this works out. And to have that next level awareness of in a high pressure moment, let me see what else I can find and delay and then play that ball in uh for the, I guess, MLS assist. There we go. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I thought... That and many other moments had me thinking that he is uh, quite a good player and quite fun to watch. Yeah, he's he's so, so good. And he's been phenomenal this whole season. I mean, he has the stage is certainly bigger now than it was in the regular season. So in that sense, he's turned it up. But Taylor, those moments that you're talking about, that that little slipped ball, the clever touch to to disorganize the defense, that's what he brings. And that's. That's huge to the how Ronnie Dilo wants his team to play. So I know, I know we've kind of gone back to the other game in this, in this bracket, but yeah, yeah he's, he's real good, guys. He's real good. <laughs> All right, Joe, let's take it back to this game, but I'm going to ask you, since we've already kind of talked about what to expect in the Eastern Conference final, do you want to take a moment to commemorate and praise Nashville? Yes, I do. I so do. Thank you for teaming me up for that, Taylor. Yes, sir. I just, I cannot say enough good things about what Nashville has done in MLS in their two years. They've only been in the league. For such a short period of time, they nailed a bunch of their intra-league deals, right? They, they've snagged guys like Anibal Godoy and CJ Sapong and Walker Zimmerman and, and other players. They've drafted well, Alistair Johnston. I, I mean, the list goes on and on for some of those guys that they've, they've used clever mechanisms to acquire. Hani Mukhtar has played, has paid off in a huge way as a designated player. They've also spent money in a way that you know, some MLS teams haven't. They're not the top spenders, but they've, they've spent a lot more than I think the narrative gives them credit for. Splashing cash for Ake Loba, for example, and he hasn't made an impact yet, but he can, right? The players have done a phenomenal job on the field this season. Gary Smith has made some tactical adjustments from last year to this year. The front office deserves a ton of credit for those moves I just described and, and many more that I didn't even mention. Almost every part of this team and this organization has been just top, top quality in Major League Soccer. And I think they deserve a ton of credit for what they've done in their first two seasons. Yeah, I I would echo that and just say that they're the, the first team to win, first expansion team to win playoff games in their first two years, which is a, a big feat when you think about Atlanta, LAFC, these teams that have come in as of recently and really made a splash. But when you build something with the defensive mindset and saying, we're going to first be a really good defensive team and then we're going to build everything from there. Good things can happen. And, and sometimes it leads you with a little bit of lack of ability to get a goal on the other end, as Joe has talked about. But I think that this Nashville squad has a lot to look forward to and they have such a solid understanding of um, who they're going to be defensively. And they've played that out really well in their first two seasons. So we have uh, lots of love for Nashville, but more love for NYCFC and Philadelphia, who will meet in the Eastern Conference Final. We have talked a bit about that. We're going to talk about the Western Conference here in just a moment. First, one more break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. 
head over to MichelobeUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, y'all, let's move out west. Let's talk Sporting KC versus RSL, a 2-1 to win for RSL. Sporting KC jumping out to the early lead, and I would argue letting RSL back into this game. Joe, would you agree with that overall statement? Let's start there, because, again, you having watched more of these games, this felt to me like Sporting KC, the home team, the dominant team, the team with a bit of the kind of momentum behind them, uh, less of the, more of the attacking momentum than RSL's defensive momentum, put it that way. Um, get this win, get this, or get this goal, get that lead, and then it seemed like maybe tried to sit off and invite that pressure and then look to counter, look to make uh, RSL uncomfortable and make RSL play out. And to my mind, that just made RSL more confident and let them grow into the game. I think, Taylor, I, I think that was the plan from the start for Peter Vermees. Hmm. I'm not sure that the goal was the, the the marker for for Sporting Kansas City to change how they're approaching this game. I think Peter Vermees came into this one with a similar idea to how he approached the Vancouver game in round one, where they set their line of confrontation maybe 10, 15 yards ahead of midfield, sometimes even deeper, and they sat in a 4-3-3 or a 4-5-1, tried to block off passing lanes, try to make it hard for the opposition to, to play through midfield, and then they wanted to win the ball and attack from there and attack in space and use Johnny Russell, use Daniel Shallowy, use Gadi Kinda from midfield. They wanted to use those players in open space on the break. So I think in the way that I, I thought about this game, I thought that Peter Vermees was almost running it back from round one and using the similar approach in this one. And early on, I actually thought it was working. And they get the goal to validate that approach. Yeah, it comes in a strange way with Aaron Herrera mistiming a tackle in the box. And it's a penalty just at the edge of the box for Gaddy Kinda. And then Johnny Russell takes it uh, and scores on David Ochoa, which was just scenes in this game. So much. <laughs> David Ochoa is the gift that keeps on giving. And I hope that he is at RSL forever. And I every time I watch him, he's must, he's must see TV for everyone. But I thought, Taylor, that that was kind of the approach for Sporting Kansas City from the beginning of this game. I'm happy to be overruled on that. And there were challenges that it presented for for themselves. There's challenges that SKC put on themselves in this game because of how they approached it. But I think there was some logic behind what Vermees did. And, and the proof had been there from round one against Vancouver a little bit. Let me ask you this then, Joe, because Peter Vermees obviously knows more than we do about coaching soccer and about tactics and how to set his team up. So I'm not trying to do the the Monday morning armchair quarterback slash, I guess, like central midfielder for this analogy to work. But what did you make of the game plan overall? Are there things you think Sporting KC could have done more effectively or should have done given the way this game played out? Or do you think the game plan from start to finish made sense? I, th- I think it, I think parts of it made sense. You think about RSL and you're not wholly concerned about their ability to break you down. They can create chances, but coming off of that Seattle game where they didn't shoot the ball until they had to in penalty kicks, you you maybe aren't so worried about what they're going to do in possession. And so I think you take your chances and say, okay, we're going to defend a little bit and we're going to then win the ball after your ineffective possession and we're going to break. It worked against Vancouver. It's worked a few other times this season. We've We've been able to use transition to our advantage. And we're going to do that again. So I, I understand that approach. There are some things, though, that I would have liked to see different from Sporting Kansas City. And I'll start with Peter Vermees. The substitutes in this game, uh, not enough of them, first of all, just like round one, where the only player that came off the bench for Sporting Kansas City against Vancouver was Roger Espinosa. But in this game, RSL changed the game with their subs. And SKC mm-hmm. simply 
don't. And I, I think that's a mistake from Peter Vermees to, to not use more players and, and even use them earlier. The only subs he had were Roger Espinosa and Kyrie Shelton in this one. So that's, that's one thing that I would have liked to see change and maybe more of an adjustment to realize, okay, we're losing control of this game. The other thing though is, is a bit simpler. It's, I just don't think Sporting Kansas City played very well in this yeah. game. I don't think the passes were all that good. I don't think the touches were particularly sharp. They were getting looks in transition and squandering them. And, and when you're doing that in the centerpiece of your game plan, in the most important phase that you're prioritizing in the attack in transition, you're, you're hamstringing yourself a little bit. So I, I think that was maybe even the biggest issue I had. I, I think if SKC give an eight performance instead of maybe a five and a half performance, they're in the Western Conference final. I just want to add to that because I think that tactically what you were saying, Joe, is to me, Peter Vermees adjusted his team style of play to fit the opponent where I feel like sometimes you overthink things and like you need to make your strength to your strength. And for Sporting Kansas City, their strength is their high energy, high pressing, especially at home, get after you type of play. Do you feel like I'm wrong in saying that? No, I mean, they did certainly change a little bit here. And and I think you make a good point, Jordan, about overcomplicating. It's hard yeah. when, and overthinking, excuse me. I think right. it's hard when it, it really did work to a T in round one. You think, okay, guys, let's just do it again. We don't need to change all that much. And it didn't yeah. turn out that way. Well, I think the one thing that they were trying to do that didn't work is, you know, in the first game versus Vancouver, they're they're getting the ball and they're playing long diagonals quickly, yeah. but that was against a three back. This is against a RSL team who was playing a four back system. They had a little bit more control with the back line as far as the spaces in between the lines. And I didn't feel like they could break them down with that. So it felt like it just needed an adjustment and that the way that they played in that first game wasn't going to work. And that adjustment just didn't come in, in the right timing. You know, it was a little too late. Jordan, what changes did you see from RSL that did come at the right time that weren't too late, that did have an impact? How did you see this game play out differently or did you see this game play out differently from their first playoff game? Yeah, I thought there were similarities to the first game, but a lot of differences. And in that first game against Seattle, RSL, Joe just said, sat back mm-hmm. a lot, just made made it really difficult for Seattle to break them down and they defended like dogs. Um not to say that they didn't defend well in this one, but there was it was more expansive and they did have the ball more. And one of the things that I saw is um I think it was early in yeah, in the 28th minute they were high pressing and counter pressing and it was Crylock really who was orchestrating so much of this from that midfield position, just pointing at players when he wanted to go orchestrating, saying, okay, you go here, Herrera, step to this person. And he's almost quarterbacking these players behind him to say, okay, this is our time. We got to go high press. And I thought that was really interesting that RSL came in with this, um, with some cojones, right? Like we're going to get in here and we're going to try to play. And I thought there was some good buildups from RSL. Um, you know, unfortunately, like the last game, nothing really too threatening, but they had the majority of the ball and they, they did a really good job of using Krylak as, uh, that player who, um, connected the lines. And so I think that tactically they were willing to stretch out a little bit and to go high press and to make SKC feel uncomfortable in their defensive end and then try to win the first and second balls. And I thought that was way different than what we saw against Seattle. I really enjoy the sort of identity of this team, um, not just Ochoa. I do very much enjoy Ochoa, but sort of Pablo Mastroeni as a player 
like usually would did a good job of kind of towing the line of being physical without being overly physical. But then there would be those moments, uh, the World Cup game against Italy when he gets sent off. You have those moments where he boiled over. And it almost seemed like it almost feels like this team learned from him and learned from that career and like kind of incorporated that into their DNA because in this game I saw them being very physical very aggressive working really hard but always sort of right up to the line and Mm -hmm. never going over into say Castellanos territory of getting a needless second yellow or a needless yellow at all and I felt like they had the intensity and physicality but also backed it up with sort of some more expansiveness and I think that's rewarded with a regulation win as opposed to overtime or penalties. 100%. This team is kind of crazy. They're kind of insane. And you have to be, though, right? You have to be. Yep. This seventh seed, we're, we're making it into the playoffs. Let's not yeah. forget, you guys, making it into the playoffs was a VAR miracle for RSL, right, on the final day. And so many mm-hmm. things had to happen for them to even be here at all. And now, let's let's go through the timeline a little bit here, right? They upset Seattle by not taking a single shot, and, and then they come back in this game and score two goals in the last 20 minutes, including an outside-of-the-foot ridiculous finish from Bobby Wood coming off the bench. So many things are happening right now. They've taken down the two-seed. They've taken down the three-seed. They're doing all of this with an interim head coach, and their first head coach of the season, Freddie Juarez, left to go be an assistant coach on the team they beat in round one of the playoffs. And, they, and uh, as well, there's no owner. There's no owner in charge of this team right now. They're up for sale. So many things have happened here for this team. They are a little bit crazy. And they, they'd almost be crazy not to be crazy with everything they've gone through this year. And somehow it set them up well. I wrote a piece on MLSoccer.com earlier this week talking about essentially, Jordan, what you just detailed, the idea of them changing a little bit from game to game against against Seattle. They were way more defensive against uh, SKC. They had to be a little bit more expansive because SKC didn't really want to take that role themselves. And that was how Peter Vermees chose to approach things. And RSL managed to get the job done in both situations. I don't know. They, they, they were the better team in this game. I don't know how well they're set up to win in the Western Conference final. But at this point, I I wouldn't be foolish enough to bet against them, guys. Just just one thing. I, in the last game against Seattle, I don't think we talked about these two players. And in this game, I thought they played really well, too, is they're holding midfielders. Uh, Luis and Rui, Ruiz. Am I saying that right? Why does that sound so funny? <laughs> <laughs> um, They're they rhyming, and um, yeah. they're also very good at playing next to each other. Uh, these two, in their ability to just mitigate that space in front of the back line. I felt like they tempted Sporting Kansas City into so many passes, centrally picked those balls off and could start going the other way. I think it's going to be difficult for them in the next game not to have Luis and what he brings to the game because he's suspended due to Mm. yellow card accumulation. And so that's going to be a difficult fill in. How is that going to work? Are they going to have... are they going to have players back that can help them in Rusnak? And can Krylex um, just drop back a little and help in that holding mid spot? I don't know, but I really do think that this RSL team and their ability to get to where they're at has had a lot to do with the solid um, play. And, you know, it's on the edge a little bit, as you guys were talking about, of the two holding midfield players. I, I really do think they've been really good. I really enjoyed Anderson Julio last night. That is a player I do not know really anything about. Uh, I'm assuming that you all do. What role do you think he might have in the conference final? Was last night or was this game an outlier or was is this sort of more of a consistent thing for him? Should we expect this level of performance in the next round? I haven't seen him be quite this dangerous in a lot of situations. He is, he's RSL's spark off the bench. Um, 25 year old 
Ecuadorian player. Uh, he's got some good moments this season. He scored some goals as well, eight goals on the year. Uh, I don't know that we should expect him to almost single-handedly change a game like he did in this one. <laughs> he, well, no, we can't just prepare of, for that. All right, fine. I, I mean, it would be nice, right? It would be nice. <laughs> I think a lot of what uh, of of his impact was based on the fact that he was just a totally different player. Than, than the player he stepped in for, than Menendez on that right side. Yeah. Menendez is much more of a tricky combination player, and, and he's not a straight-line speed kind of guy. And you you switch like that, and you go from Jekyll to Hyde, and, and Anderson Julio's running down your throat. And he did that, and he gets that goal, and he is effective. So he can be a really strong option to bring off the bench, and I think he was the best example of RSL subs being far more impactful than Sporting Kansas City subs and really changing the game in that way. So tricky player could absolutely be a factor in the Western Conference final. I don't know that he'll have this much impact, but hey, stranger things have happened. Yeah. And just that the tactics of change from Mastroeni to bring those two players in, Miram and Julio. I know Miram is not the speed that Julio is, but they both, I think, were put in to say, okay, take players 1v1 in the channel and go at them on the dribble because Menendez and Chang were playing so centrally as inverted wingers for the majority of the game, which gave a lot of space to the outside backs to come and join the attack. But I felt like that's how the goal got scored. It was a transition moment and Miriam dribbles 60 yards in a 1v1 situation on in the channel to get a cross off for Bobby Wood. I felt like that was a really smart tactical move to say, okay, well, you've been playing like this for the entirety of the game. Now we're going to switch it in the last 15 minutes is go time for RSL where they really start to up their level. And I think they did it again in this game. Um, I thought that was a really smart change. All right. So we've got the seventh seed RSL. We've got them in the Western Conference final against the fourth seed Portland Timbers who get there ahead of the Colorado Rapids, courtesy of another Mabiala weight winner. Joe, should should RSL be game planning just to deal with Mabiala? Is that the only way they're going to go through, <laughs> especially if we don't have Blanco shooting from distance? Man mark, Larice Mabiala. I want someone sitting on him at all times, even in build up for the Portland Timbers. Give him no room to breathe. No, no space. No space. <laughs> I like it. I mean, this seems, this seems like a plan. He can score from anywhere. Uh, though normally it's inside the six yard box. So maybe not so much anywhere, but no, uh, no, another anywhere. big win for him. Uh, but a big loss with Iron Espria getting a red card or I'm assuming that would be a big loss. Also questions about, uh, Blanco's health as we go into that final. What do you expect from Portland, given what we saw against Colorado, Joe? I think they're going to try to take on the role of the more defensive, transition-oriented team again. That's that's mm-hmm. kind of how they approach this game. And to be honest, that's how they've approached a lot of this season. They don't really care to have the ball all that much. And if Sebastian Blanco is not ready to go, and at this point I've seen nothing, I've read nothing about him being ready, I would be very surprised after how he pulled up in the the 50th minute and early on in the second half of this game against Colorado on Thanksgiving. I would be surprised if he's back. And so without him, you have even less of a reason really to play with the ball and try to possess. So I think they'll they'll take on the role of, yeah, we're going to absorb pressure and we're going to go after we win the ball. And they're going to do to RSL or they're going to try to do to RSL what RSL did to Seattle back in round one. So that's my expectation for this this team and in for Portland's half of the Western Conference final. And I think it could work out for them. A Blanco is a huge loss. And I, I could say that a hundred times and it still wouldn't properly capture how big of a loss he is. He's been that good for this team and his numbers are that good. But they were good without him at the end of this game. They can do it. Portland created four quality chances in the last 25 minutes of this game and, and it ended up being enough to get them on the board and to get them winning this game with that last goal. 
So Portland, like I said with RSL, it'd be foolish to count RSL out, and it'd be foolish to count Portland out either. Uh, this has probably been discussed ad nauseum, but I'm going to bring it up for the first time on TSS in a while at least. <laughs> Why are we not seeing Diego Valeri for Portland? What, what's the situation there, and might we see him in the conference final, Jordan? That's a great question. I think a lot of it has to do just with... Um, the old? speed at which Portland <laughs> what? play. What'd you Ageism, say, Joe? Joe? I just said it has Ageism. to do with old. Is uh, that, yeah. I feel like yeah, that's fair. And, and I think that I tried to say it in a nicer way. Um, <laughs> the speed at which Portland play. <laughs> uh, they really want to transition <laughs> quickly. So and unfortunately, Valeri has difficulty in those, those moments in getting into the spaces that they create. So, um, I don't know that that's the question, right? Because there's not going to be a Sebastian Blanco. I thought that Jamie Chara did a good job in that role, especially baiting in the the opposing center backs a lot of the time, Lawless Abubakar, into the midfield space to create space to then run into um, in behind. And so I I think Jamie Chara can play that role slightly, but I don't think he has the the X factor that Blanco mm-hmm. has and nobody has that. So how can they kind of pull together as a unit and find some more combinations that work well there? Uh, maybe we'll see Diego Valeri, but I, I doubt it just from, he hasn't played that mm-hmm. much as of lately. Uh, I just looked up Diego Valeri's uh, birth date and thus his age. And let me just say this, uh, shut up, Joe. Uh, instead, <laughs> yeah. Jordan, let me ask you this. Uh, what did you make of Colorado's performance? Uh, we tend to only talk about the victors, who's yeah. going to move on, what they're going to do in the next round. But did you like what you saw from Colorado? I thought Colorado really played well, especially in the first half. And I think they noticed the times that Portland got uh, slightly stretched because it, this was a Portland team, as Joe said, they're going to play a little bit more defensive. And they did more in the second half than the first half. I thought the first half there was a few times where they got stretched in between the lines and Jack Price did a good job of receiving the ball from one of the, the two outside center backs um, in, in Colorado's three-back system. And then he would just ping the ball either diagonally to, to Kellen Acosta, who could get an overload with Mark Anthony Kay on the far side, or he'd find Austin Trusty, who would then dribble into the space created um, – by a, a higher Mark Anthony K and a low block Portland team. I thought they really utilized um, those spaces well in the first half and, and used their overloads on the, in the channel. Well, um, a lot of that had to do with Kellen Acosta and Keegan Rosenberry on the other time and having early crosses. I thought that those were the best chances that Colorado created, but where I think I got, they got it wrong. Taylor is, I don't think they used the altitude and the not playing to their advantage. This was a Portland team who just had played a few days before and you're playing at altitude and there's an advantage for Colorado. And I think they could have high pressed a little bit more in the second half. I don't know if you felt that too, Joe, that it felt too defensive for me for Colorado. And I know that Portland is really good when there is space in behind, but was there a way to utilize the front three or even the front four for Colorado to go and press a little bit more to force Portland into a long ball, win the first and second balls and then go attack with a little bit more space um, in between the lines, as opposed to Colorado, just keeping it building up and Portland getting so far defensive that the only thing they could do was have a cross into the box that was usually defended well by Portland. I just felt like they didn't utilize their energy and their, rest to their advantage. I, I think that would have been useful for Robin Frazier and the Rapids in this game. The only challenge, as I see it, Jordan, is 
Portland don't really like to be high pressed because they don't really like to play the ball out from the back. I mean, they really like to play it out from the back. They'll move it forward <laughs> and play direct. So at, at that point, you're almost just re-emphasizing winning those second balls. Mm-hmm. You don't, if you're the Rapids, I'm not sure how many chances you really have to press and to take advantage of either high turnovers or really even to force mm-hmm. long balls in a different way. So I agree. I think it would have been helpful for the Rapids to use that energy, to use the players they had coming off the bench in this game to really try to take it to Portland. And, and ultimately, we didn't see that. Going back to uh, your, your comments about the Rapids in possession, Jordan, maybe another thing they got wrong in this game. I agree with the good things that you saw. And there were a lot of great moments. Cole Bassett, I thought was the best I'd ever seen him in a soccer game. I thought he was really, really good, you guys. Drifting over to the left side to combine with Mark Anthony Kay, getting into the box, moving off the ball, being an influential player. Cole Bassett and, and other things here, there was a lot to like for the Rapids. But one thing that I felt like they got a little bit wrong that Portland really took advantage of was in possession. I thought the Rapids were too too slow. They took too long mm-hmm. on the ball. They were reliant on playing on the left wing in the first half, and they were hesitant to switch it over to the right wing. They were pretty cross-heavy. And Jordan, you mentioned that. And some of the crosses were good and, and, and timed in good moments. But I thought they were too reliant on those things. And ultimately, they created very little in the second half. Robin mm-hmm. Frazier tried to juice the the attack with his subs, but it didn't It didn't end up mattering in this game. So credit to Portland for how they defended in that 4-4-2. Yeah. They were smart. Gio Savarese had the wingers drop back even into the back line. So at times it was a yeah. back five with Aspria or Jimmy Chara dropping in. At times it was a back six just temporarily to cover for the width that the Rapids had in the attack. So it was a mixture for me of poor in a little sluggish possession play in 65, 70% of the time, 70% of the moments for the Rapids, but also just really good defending from Portland. Yeah. And we talked about Mastroeni and him making good subs. And I feel like, unfortunately for Ramad Fraser, the, the subs he made were not as good as that. Um, I, I didn't think that in this type of game with the amount of crosses that they did had have and the amount of defensive the defensive shape of Portland, they were so deep. They had numbers there. There was no space in behind. So what's the point of bringing Barrios and Lewis on? I, I understand that they bring something a little bit different, but can you keep Baji on? At least then it gives you some height and some ability to head the ball in those situations and a goal scorer in those situations. I just felt like the substitutes and even Nomaly coming in, I don't feel like he adds to, as you were just saying, the pace of the game. I felt like he slowed it down too much. And one of the best um, transition moments for Portland was on one of his dribbles at the top of the box in Colorado's attacking half. He loses the ball and then Portland is out in two passes. And it's Jimmy Chara barely missing a ball at the back post to put Portland ahead. So I just felt like it was a little sluggish, but also that the, the substitutions for Robin Fraser were just not um, the right ones in given what the, the game had get, had given him. So if I get my expectations for the Western Conference final right, then I will enjoy the game. But I, I want to ask you all with that in mind, this question. <laughs> right now, I'm picturing a game in which like Portland are all in their 18 and RSL are all in their 18. And they're both just sort of <laughs> looking at each other across a 90 yard gap. Like, no, you attack us. No, you attack it's- us. Like, it's like is when this game going to be starts? ugly? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and all exactly. the balls are there, and you're like, do I go? Exactly. Or do I not? Can yes. I get it? Can I not get it? <laughs> I'm picturing an awkward dodgeball game. Thank you, Jordan. Uh, <laughs> is that unfair? Do you expect this game to be better than I'm building it? And if so, uh, if not, maybe how will it be interesting then? How will you all be enjoying this game? It probably will have more of a look as that Sporting Kansas City RSL game. 
because I I do think that Portland knows how to play in, in their stadium and they will concede possession. But RSL, I think, will be brave in moments. And I think that this Portland team, what they've showed us all year long and really under Gio Savarese, is that they are so lethal in transition moments. And so if they can get a couple of those in their stadium with the crowd behind them, I think that that will be key. But I think it will be RSL potentially having a little bit more of the the ball and trying to break them down and maybe getting a shot on goal. I agree, Jordan. I think that's a that's kind of how I'm thinking of this game, which means it's going to look completely opposite of what we just said. But I I think it I think it's going to be a fun game, to be honest. I think it's going to be a lot more fun than the opening stages of a dodgeball game, which are I guess they're kind of fun. They're tense. The, you, know, you get the adrenaline going. You're ready to get beamed in the head at any moment, right? Um, I'm I'm excited for this one because of the personalities involved. Because I think there's a 20 percent chance it ends with David Ochoa and Gio Savarese fighting at some point in this game. I think that could be great fun. There's a lot Fashion. of opportunities for this game. To be a blast and weird and, and everything that Major League Soccer is could be encapsulated in this game. I do think RSL will have the majority of possession, but Portland are are capable at times of playing through pressure a little bit. And they did that some in the second half of this game against mm-hmm. Colorado. And they're also dangerous in transition. So it's going to be a weird mix of things. I think there's a good chance that RSL get Albert Rusnak back. We talked about that earlier, Jordan. You mentioned that. That could have an impact for them because he's been really good in terms of chance creation this season. Just now coming back from covid and then Portland missing some key players in the attack. What will that look like? There's a nice mix of questions and things we feel confident about in wild cards in this game. I think it's going to be fun over the weekend. I think we've talked about uh, all four of these remaining teams in various ways. We've got the Western Conference Final on Saturday, 6.30 p.m. on FS1. Sunday at 3 p.m. on ABC, we've got the Eastern Conference Final. My final question or questions for you both Uh it's basically of the playoff coaches, not necessarily the remaining coaches, although if you wanted to go with one of those four, that would be fine. Which coach would you prefer to be in charge of your club if you had to win a game this weekend? Who do you think is the best at sort of that short-term motivation, getting the team up, getting them ready to play, versus which coach do you think would you would want in charge for a sort of long-term plan? If you're building a program, who do you want in charge? I want for the long-term plan... I think I want Robin Frazier in charge, or maybe I want Bruce Arena in charge. One of those two, they both inherited some clubs in bad spots, and they've rebuilt them and retooled them and turned them into genuinely dangerous and memorable teams. So I think those would be my picks for long-term options. As far as short-term, maybe Brian Schmetzer. I know they lost that game to RSL, but that's such a wacky game. He's proven an ability to win in the postseason. He's one of the winningest postseason coaches in MLS history. I think he's tied for third right now in, in all-time playoff wins. So I, I'd go Brian Schmetzer, although there is, there's a number of other coaches that I think would do well in that role, too. Yeah, I'm going Brian Schmetzer for my long term, actually. Um, I just like what he's done over the last few years. And his adaptability, especially this year, I think shows that um, the way he thinks the game is is current with his team. And instead of trying to plug in players to a system he already has, he adapts the system to utilize the players that he has. So I really like Schmetzer. Um, and then short term, how can I not say Pablo? I mean, mm-hmm. if you want to get up for a game, there's nobody that you're going to not. I mean, that person you're going to run through a brick wall for is Pablo Mastroeni. And so I'm going with Pablo. Jordan, have you ever played for a team, uh, either amateur, professional, college, whatever it might be, that like kind of had the villain status? Because between Ochoa, the Mastroeni mustache, <laughs> the physicality of some of these games, it does feel like they have embraced the villain role. 
Um, I'm trying to think. I feel like, you know, it's hard to think that you're the villain yeah. when you're in like a rivalry game. That's what makes but, you a good villain is if you right, never think yeah. you're the villain. So there I you think, go. I mean, there was a definite a rivalry I had growing up that um, I think the other team thought we were villains, but <laughs> we thought they were the villains. And but we embraced it like that feeling of, um, you know, I think that we don't talk as much smack sometimes as as David Ochoa, but who does is the question. Um I think that it's fun to have the the ability to use that. He really utilizes it to his advantage. But um, yeah, rivalry games are fun. And to to have that little edge, um, I think that's the only time is when I was in, in youth soccer playing um, for national championships and regional championships against this one team was really, yeah, you, you kind of take on that little um, evil personality. Jordan's getting right. flashbacks right now. She's right? seeing. Right. No, I'm like thinking about those games. <laughs> well, we've. I think at this point, I'm not sure, but I'm guessing we've gone over an hour. And whenever we go over an hour, we we take a weird turn. So, Jordan, the weird turn I have for you: if you had Joe Lowry on a pitch, do you think Joe Lowry is the like, like the uh, you know, like shirt tucked Ooh. in, squeaky clean, Aww. like he's the industrious <laughs> engine, or is he the like poking the player in the eye when the ref's not looking? Is is there a little bit of a, a craft to Joe Lowry, or do you think he is? Uh, just going to be the kind of the upstanding number six with the captain's armband on. I think there's an in between, and I think that in between is found in Dax McCarty. You know, like there we he, go. He he gives you that grit, and he, <laughs> he he's not afraid to yell at you and at the ref. But for the most part, he just does the job. Jordan, I am honored by everything you just said. Uh, the Dax Sorry, McCarty comparison back. is no, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, he did play a little center back this season, so I'm going to take that. Actually, uh, <laughs> that's beautiful, and I don't think anyone's ever given me a better compliment than you just did. Well, you just go about your day smiling then, Joe. <laughs> so that means, uh, so if Joe were going to be a professional player, he would be Dax McCarty. Joe, is it fair to say that if Jordan were going to be a professional player, she would be Jordan? <laughs> I think that sounds about right, Taylor. Oh, Jordan perfect. is Jordan. Cool. I'm, I'm glad we got there. I'm glad we got there. Yeah. Then uh, I look forward to recapping these conference finals with both of you next week. But for now, Jordan Angeli, thank you so much for taking all the time to answer my weird meandering questions, but also some on point questions about these games. Yeah, it's always fun. The meandering <laughs> questions just, you know, add the cherry on top of everything. I appreciate that. I appreciate your lies. Joe Lowry, thank you so much for being here as well. No, Taylor, thank you. <laughs> Listeners, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you all again very soon. Bye.